times would be a harsh, a gross understatement. We have rising inflation, sexual perversion, schools infiltrated by shooters and fleshy ideologies and political and military instability on a scale we haven't seen in a long time, maybe ever before. Immoral governmental leadership. The world is a mess. It's only getting worse. But Chicken Little has a different message tonight in light of all that than the sky is falling. Like I said this morning, it is, of course, the world is ending, but God is sovereign. Every society on earth, including ours, is actively conspiring against the Lord Jesus Christ and His rule and reign over the earth since He is the Son of Man who has ascended victoriously to God's right hand. They oppose Him and they oppress His people. The book of Revelation in particular gives us then this deeply symbolic but also very real description of the forces that are arrayed against Jesus Christ and His kingdom. And standing behind all this opposition to Jesus is Satan himself, the great red dragon we saw back in 12.3 and the ancient serpent later in 20 verse 2, only he doesn't work alone. He orchestrates and fuels a global network of political, social, religious, immoral, idolatrous, economic forces that are anti-Christ in everything they are and in everything they do. And Revelation calls this global historic Satanic conspiracy against Jesus, the beast. And Revelation gives another name to the beast, which is Babylon. We know the name Babylon from the ancient kingdom in the 6th century that took Israel into captivity. This was an idolatrous, um, immoral kingdom, guilty of all kinds of wickedness and oppression. So over time, the name Babylon didn't just come to describe the empire, but any earthly kingdom or city or nation or ruler even that was opposed to Jesus. One preacher comments that Babylon in Revelation refers to any nation such as North Korea, any social organization such as Planned Parenthood, any political movement such as communism under Lenin and Stalin or the pornography film industry or false religions such as Islam that denies Jesus Christ as God incarnate and opposes the teachings of God's Word in the Bible. So we can't really limit Babylon to any one individual or institution or nation or city. It's really impossible if we're trying to ask what does Babylon look like, it's, it's impossible to pinpoint one location, one place in the world and say, that's definitely Babylon. Anywhere that Satan is deceiving and promoting his conspiracy against Jesus is Babylon. Babylon is the symbol of the whole world's opposition to Jesus Christ. Alan Johnson writes that Babylon represents the total culture of the world apart from God. Sam Storm says that Babylon is the symbol of human civilization with all its pomp and circumstance organized in opposition to God. It is the sum total of pagan culture, social, intellectual, commercial, political, and religious. It is the essence of evil and pagan opposition to Jesus as Lord and Savior. It is the symbol for collective rebellion against God in any and every form. It is the universal or world system of unbelief, idolatry, and apostasy that opposes and persecutes the people of God. So, Babylon comes in many different expressions, but the two most prominent in Revelation are its political and religious expressions. The woman or the prostitute 
we read about tonight in Revelation 17 is a symbol for the religious embodiment of Babylon. While the scarlet beast she rides on is the political expression and they seem to be in league, they will turn on each other. We know that the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations in chapter 17 is a symbol for Babylon because that's precisely what verse 5 teaches us. We also know that this is mainly its religious dimension since the prostitute commits sexual immorality, which as we've seen in Revelation is a metaphor for religious apostasy and idolatry, just as Israel's idolatry was likened to sexual immorality in the prophets. Now, that doesn't mean that actual sexual immorality doesn't take place in sinful Babylon. Of course it does. But this sexual immorality here stands for the abandonment of the true God for idols and false gods and worshiping them instead. All these forces will one day make their final war or try to on God and his son. We know this from what we've been reading in chapter 16. They will lose horribly because only God is sovereign. <clears throat> so even at the last day, when it appears Satan and his forces have indeed overcome the kingdom of God, the lamb will return with his people to conquer them once and for all. So let me pick up here in verse one of Revelation 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. This is a horrific image that John sees in these first few verses. The vision personifies the apostate world that is set in opposition to Jesus as a prostitute. This is what the world is like, a prostitute. The, it, it points to the sensual, the seductive appeal through which she lures people away from Jesus to worship false gods. In verse 1, 3, 9, and 15 of this chapter, she's sitting. She's mocking the Lord. She wants to appear as though she's enthroned over the world. This portrays the influence she has over people and over the beast that she's sitting on. Later in 18.7, she will even say, I sit as a queen. In verse 1, she's seated on many waters. Later, verse 15 tells us precisely what the waters she's seated on represent. Peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So John is describing the full global influence of false religion and idolatry that engulfs the entire world outside of Christ. She's being judged here, first of all, in verse 2, because the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her. Her sexual immorality in idolatry. Other verses in Revelation refer to this as their fornication. And again, even though this doesn't refer to certain kings of the earth having a literal physical affair with a literal prostitute named Babylon, 
the worship of Babylon certainly encourages and promotes it. We know this. Think of how sexually immoralized our society has become. It, it, just, just in America, it's beyond shameful at this point. Right? People dancing naked in front of little children and their, their parents encouraging it. And it's, it's beyond description at this point. Right? I mean, there, there's no such thing as shame anymore. Not in any way that we knew it before. But this is the way John's vision portrays how the powers of the world have accepted her and embraced her demands and involved themselves in her conspiracy against Jesus Christ. I may mention of it earlier, but interestingly, this is the same sexual infidelity, immorality, is precisely the metaphor God uses to speak of Israel's worship in the Old Testament of other gods, of false gods, right? The worship of these false gods set up against Christ here is described as sexual immorality. And drunkenness from her wine points us primarily to this prostitute as a picture of all false religions. And I would say especially any apostate church that claims the name of Christ and yet worships false gods. In verse 3, John is, excuse me, Carried away in the spirit into a wilderness again, like Ezekiel the prophet was in his visions. It's a perplexing vision we see here because there are both many waters present in verse 1, but then the wilderness or the desert also in verse 3. But we have to remember the geography here is symbolic. These images are explaining concepts to us, right? There was an overflowing river in the desert back in chapter 12, verses 15 and 16, but why is John taken by the Spirit into the wilderness or the desert here? Why does he, why is he taken there here? Back in chapter 12, God took his people into the wilderness or the desert to protect them from Satan's destructive plans, right? Here, the angel carries John away from the prostitute's seductive influence. So as Dennis Johnson writes, John can see clearly what this prostitute and her plans to destroy are. That's why the angel takes him away. The beast in verse 3 here is described exactly like the beast we saw back in chapter 13, verse 1. Its scarlet color connects it to the red dragon, to Satan in chapter 12, verse 3. Maybe even pointing also to the bloodshed of persecution. The woman sitting on this beast seems to indicate some sort of alliance between the idolatrous religious world system and the tyranny of the state. They're working in tandem, the whole world. That's why what happens around us is so sinister and so evil. This disgusting beast, this great prostitute, have aligned themselves to destroy the church and rebel against God. That's what's behind everything happening in our world. Beloved, Satan is real. He's really behind all this. Don't underestimate what he can do. Just don't forget he's on a leash, right? Her appearance is malevolently mesmerizing, right? She, in the the vision, she's not an ugly prostitute. I think she's massive in some degree, but, or to some degree, but she's clothed in purple and scarlet. She's adorned with jewels and pearls. She's, Beautiful and seductive to the world, at least. And has all the world's economy and money in her hands. She holds a cup full of abominations and impurities. 
representing all the ways her and her worldly lovers are engaged in idolatry together. She's mesmerizing, but this cup she's holding, it speaks to her vileness, her wickedness. She has a name on her forehead in verse 5, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abomination. She is the contrast of the mother we saw earlier in Revelation that gives birth to the son. She has given birth instead to every wicked thing in history's resistance of God. That's why she's so massive. She's persecuted and killed so many saints that she's drunk with their blood. John is overwhelmed by this image in verse 6. This is the only time that I can think of up to this point that we see this. John says, or John marveled greatly. He marveled at this. So she is seductive and terrifying and repulsive and confusing. What will become of her here in judgment? She's pictured in judgment here first. Before we get to that, we get a deeper description of the beast on which she is sitting when we pick it up in verse 7. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. It's very confusing language, really. Let's focus here mainly on the description of the beast in verse 8 as this one who was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit to go to destruction. Remember in Revelation, Satan is almost always pictured as trying to mimic God. That's the only ploy he really has. God has been described three times so far in Revelation as what? The one who was and who is and who is to come. That the beast is not, is not, and is about to rise at the same time, are mocking the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The beast can be described in some sense with the words is not. How is the beast not? Because the cross and resurrection of Jesus in Colossians so soundly defeated the beast. Colossians talks about this also. For all intents and purposes, it was destroyed. At, I already said Colossians. Revelation 1 is speaking to this also. For all intents and purposes, it was destroyed at the resurrection, but he also lives in the sense that he's still trying to destroy the people of God and sway the world against Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus, his coming up, means he will live forever. The beast rising from the bottomless pit, his counterfeit resurrection, which is just his death throes, will lead to his destruction. Some see the beasts rising from the bottomless pit, not as a parody of Jesus' resurrection, but a parody of Jesus' second coming. If so, if that's the case, the beast's rising is a demonic counterfeit of the return of Jesus. Either way, it's a counterfeit. The beast comes up from the bottomless pit. Jesus comes down from heaven. We pick it up in verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. 
and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. That's that's it. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him, he's got people with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now, this is a particularly, maybe notoriously difficult text to understand. Okay, now there are two main approaches, kind of standard approaches to interpreting the passage. There's the historical view, which when I say that, and there, there are two sides to that view. That's kind of the, you know, that would be the view that, that you know, uh, I'll, I'll get into it here. Then there's the symbolic view. So there's a historical, but ironically you could say futurist view. And then there's the symbolic view. In the historical interpretation, this is talking first of all about the Roman Empire very specifically. So verse 9 references the seven hills on which the city, the actual city of Rome sat. These seven mountains or hills are also identified with seven kings. Five of them are in the past. One is presently ruling and the last one hasn't come yet. You could understand if you were John and his audience, of course, you're going to see this in the Roman Empire. Um, the disagreement among those that hold this view, remember I said in the historical view, there are two sides to it or two different views within it. The, dis- the disagreement among those that hold this view is over which seven of the many Roman emperors does this refer to. Okay, so the second historical view interprets the seven mountains in verse 9 as seven world empires that over time have oppressed the people of God. Five of them were historical, even to John. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. The sixth kingdom in this view, Rome, ruled the world when John wrote Revelation. The seventh, the other that has not yet come, refers then to a world empire that will arise at the end of history. This is the most common interpretation of this passage for the futurist view. The futurist view being um, those who read Revelation that it refers to events specifically all at the end of time, right? Right before the very end. This is, or I just, I just said that. These, those that hold this view would look to chapter 13, verse 3, where you have the fatal head wound the beast suffered. That was, in this view, the fall of ancient Rome. It's miraculous recovery. It's counterfeit resurrection that makes the world marvel there is the future revival of Rome in all its previous power and glory, even surpassing it. And in verse 11, the beast not only has seven heads, so the beast has seven heads, the beast itself is an eighth head. So this is very, this is a very thick vision. So the beast then is an eighth empire that is somehow related to the seven. So, in the futurist view, that would say that out of this revived Roman Empire, the seventh kingdom, will come the empire of the Antichrist. That's the eighth one out of this. So this would be the final climactic manifestation of the beast's opposition to the kingdom of God. Now, 
I think one major problem with that view is that it, it's, it's relying on how, how it identifies them, right? So the five historical kingdoms that are picked, how do we know that's the five that were intended, right? That Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. How do we know that those are the five referred to? These five are certainly significant, but it does overlook that there were many other significant persecutions the people of God has suffered in mass. How is there no accounting for the Seleucids of Syria, for example, the evil Antiochus, Epiphanes persecuting God's people? And if the seventh world empire in the list John gives hasn't appeared yet, how do we make any substantial difference between it and the many major world empires that have come and gone, horribly wicked ones, in the past 1600 years? Right? How did they not meet the criteria? Especially ones that have horribly persecuted the church. Nazis, communist empires, the Axis powers, Islam's systemic persecution of Christians, etc. So, in my opinion, a more consistent explanation, given the way that John has been using numerical symbolism, is to not take the number seven as a precise list of seven specific kingdoms, but as the number seven usually means in Revelation, these seven kingdoms refer to the fullness or completeness of all the world's kingdoms in their opposition to the kingdom of God and His Son. I'm quoting there. I think this it's seven because it stands for the totality of the world, the perfect, complete number of the whole world's kingdoms united against Jesus. John is describing the fullness, the totality of these kingdoms' rebellion against God and persecution of His people. So, the seven mountains and kings aren't particular ones. They symbolize the oppressive power of all the world's government throughout the ages. If There was a whole excursus I read on the different theories of the seven Caesars that are meant here. And it's just, it's, it's, that, that's the thing. If, if, you, if you try to get so particular, it really does become subjective. Because you have one group saying, I think it's these seven emperors. And another group saying, well, I think it's these. And then and the, the list just goes on and on. The seven mountains and kings aren't particular. They symbolize the oppressive power of all the world's government throughout the ages. And when God's people have not submitted to these authorities or believe their false claims, they have been persecuted. The seven heads of the beast would be a symbol for the fullness of their blasphemy and evil. Think about how we use the term the seven seas. Right? The seven seas doesn't refer to seven actual seas. It refers, that's how you'd say all the seas of the world. You sailed the seven seas, right? As another commentator says, seven isn't a quantitative number in Revelation. It refers instead to qualitative fullness in Revelation. During the time of the Apostle John, Rome was the big manifestation of the beast in his day. This is John's way of saying that this beast holds sway over all fallen, rebellious humanity throughout human history, particularly in its institutionalized expressions through the world's governing authorities and conspiracies. But, beloved, take heart. Don't miss the forest for the trees. When you read Revelation, five of them, meaning at least that the majority of them, have already fallen. They've come and gone. One head was still in power when John wrote, and one head was still yet to come. 
But when this final climactic expression of the beast's power finally rises, and it's the worst it has ever been on the earth, in verse 10, it will only rule for a little while. And yes, just when it seems that the beast is dead and gone, one more time in the form of this eighth head, it will rise for one final war against God. I believe, personally, that's referring to Satan's temporary release that we'll read about when we get to chapter 20. But even then, beloved, very quickly, it will be completely destroyed. They will make war in verse 14 on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Do you notice that? That when the Lamb returns, He won't be alone. His saints are with Him. If we have died before this day, we'll be with Him as He comes down. If we're alive on this day, we'll be caught up with Him as He comes down. But the Lamb will conquer. The Redeemer will triumph. God doesn't need weapons and armies and strategies and superior strength to defeat evil, even though He has it. He'll do it with a Lamb who has been slain. Because salvation is total. Right? Jesus being the Lamb that was slain means salvation for all His children. And it means His ascension and His victory as King of kings and Lord of lords in His resurrection. The called and chosen and faithful will be in His army, beloved. Do you just think about that for a minute. One way or the other, you and I will be in this group with Him. You want any, like an inkling of what that may be like. How many of you have ever seen the third Lord of the Rings movie, The Return of the King? Nobody? Awesome. Okay, nobody has seen that. Christy, you've seen it. Gianna, you've seen it. Carmine's out cold, but he's seen it. So, but, but when, um, you need to see it. Because, but when the army, the, the Rohan, the riders of Rohan appear on Pelennor Fields, it's cinema gold, man. You gotta see it, cause it's gonna be way better than that. And I have no idea where I am now. Cause nobody watches the movies I watch. <laughs> but this, this is just such a, just like, this is real. This will happen. I love this. The Lamb will conquer. The Redeemer will triumph. Notice that the called and chosen and faithful are the opposite here of the earth dwellers back in verse 8, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Beloved, that's a sentence that has a lot of meaning, and we need to submit to what it's saying. God is fortifying the hearts of His people here. That's what He's doing in this text, in this vision. Fortifying our hearts for this great and terrible day when it comes. To know that God will not forget His very own children in the midst of the annihilation, really, of His enemies. He will not forget us. He was comforting them with it because John didn't know whether or not this would happen in his day or not. Just as we don't. So that the uh, comforting words, the exhortations remain the same for every generation of the church. God is fortifying our hearts. He's not going to forget us. We're not going to get lost in the shuffle. We won't be collateral damage. His eyes are too sharp too sovereign, his head's too big and too strong to lose one of us when he comes to put an end to evil, beloved. So you are known tonight, you personally. You are known, your name is known. 
your location on that day is known by God. Your name is written down. You will be accounted for, beloved, on that day. He holds you now. He will most certainly hold you then. The eighth head or final manifestation of the beast's power will launch that final, unprecedented, global assault on the church as Satan makes his last effort to destroy Christ's kingdom once and for all. And for a very brief time, one hour in verse 12, to be exact, probably not 60 minutes, but why not? Why not five minutes, really? The ten kings or all the pagan rulers on the earth will join themselves to the beast to make war on the Lamb. To destroy Jesus, destroy His people, but it will all be for naught. Jesus will return from heaven and conquer them because He, not Satan, not the beast, not the great prostitute, Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings. So the first six heads or kingdoms speak of the course of human history. While the seventh kingdom refers to the penultimate, the second to last earthly incarnation of the beast, which will not last last very long. The eighth head, the ultimate and final incarnation of the beast, also has figurative significance, that number eight, because of Satan's mockery in the early church. I was reading this this week. I, I didn't realize this. The number eight was a symbolic reference to the day Jesus rose from the dead. Remember the method of gematria, gematria, gematria that we talked about before, assigning Uh, numbers to letters, numerical value to letters. For what it's worth, the sum of the Greek letters in the name Jesus, do you know what that equals? 888. Again, the beast will ultimately imitate Jesus then and mock even his resurrection when he inaugurated a new creation, started a new creation, right? On the eighth day, so to speak. Lastly, of course, there are the ten horns. Look back at 15 or that we need to still talk about. They've been mentioned, but he says, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. That's referring us back to verse 1. So he tells us what those waters represented, right? And the ten horns that you saw. So when you notice things like that in the text, remember, okay, so it is not out of the question. In fact, it's in the text that these images are metaphors and labels for something Real, right? So th- this is very important here. Verse 16, And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Now, in the futurist view of this text, the ten horns refer to ten literal rulers of ten literal Roman provinces, or maybe, in some views, They actually mean the ten nations that survived the Roman Empire. Um, Some of you, maybe, some of you, maybe, I don't remember this. I was studying this, the the excitement, or we should say the anxiety in evangelical circles, which again, I I don't understand this. When it seems like the world is, is going into these days, why do Christians get so scared, so anxious, like, oh no, it's happening, it's happening, we should be thrilled if, if, if that's what we believe is happening, if the end has arrived, we should be thrilled. This is what we live for, right? But there was anxiety in evangelicalism in January of 1981. I was six. Don't remember this. When the European common market admitted its 10th member nation. 
See that? So the antennas go up. Ten. Now you have ten kingdoms, right? There they are, the ten horns, and they're in the region of the old Roman Empire. This is it. So that was 41 years ago. Back in 1950, there were six nations in the European common market. Italy, France, Belgium, Germany, Luxembourg, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. On January 1st, 1973, the number became nine when the United Kingdom, Denmark, and Ireland joined. Then again, the hoofbeats, I just got a stutter, started until the tenth nation, Greece, was the one added in 1981. So you had ten. You had them in the region of the old Roman Empire. But the anxiety, you know, it wasn't excitement, it was fear. Anxiety was short-lived. Like, oh, it's not that. Okay, in 1986, Spain and Portugal joined, making 12 member nations. Austria, Finland, and Sweden joined in 1995, making it 15. In 2004, 10 more countries joined. Cyprus, Czech Republic, Estonia, Hungary, Latvia, Lithuania, Malta, Poland, Slovakia, and Slovenia. In 2007, Romania and Bulgaria joined. It's now called the European Union. It had 27 member nations as of 2010. You and I know that England recently withdrew, so it's 26 right now. And beloved, I, I would say just be mindful of that when, when, you, when you notice those things breaking down. When all the attention is on one thing happening and everybody is sure that it's this one thing and then it breaks down and how many times that happens that we have to re-gauge our view of the end times and just consider that maybe there's another way the text has been written to us. Don't get locked into literal numbers and names and dates. We'll miss the point of apocalyptic prophetic language and what its purpose is. And we'll go back and forth between excitement and anxiety Certainty and confusion. And Jesus brought us perfect love that casts out fear. There's no way for us to live. The Spirit who seals us and makes us secure has done just that. So God is fortifying our hearts in this book. He's not giving us really a secret code to crack time. We walk by faith, not by sight. The number 10 is like the number 7 or has been up to this point in Revelation. It's figurative here. For the variety and number of earthly nations and their rulers that have joined themselves to the conspiracy plot of the beast against Jesus. This is what's behind all the immorality and fascism and wickedness and wealth of the world's nations. There's a conspiracy to take over the world by Satan, beloved. It's happening right now. It infects the very water we drink and the air we breathe. It's everywhere. It's even in America. And it's rearing its ugly head. These Ten horns or kings embody the summation of Satan's final attack against Jesus. They are identical to the kings of the earth later in Revelation 19, 19 to 21. They will be there to fight Jesus when he returns. The whole world will be there. And he will end them in a moment with his word. The ten horns represent any and all earthly kings, all the authority of the earth that is aligned ultimately with Satan. I would encourage you, beloved, research what happens behind closed doors. Even the literal rituals and language they use behind the scenes, in the places of power, in the state, and you tell me what they worship and whom they serve. It is astounding. But, beloved, notice finally in verse 17 that 
Amazingly, do you know what they're doing in all this? You want to talk about security for you and I in our hearts? They're doing the will of Almighty God. Look at verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the king's of the earth. So their unified purpose to give all power and authority to the beast is the sovereign design and will of God so that they actually fulfill his eternal purpose when God will put them to rout forever and utterly destroy them. In 13.4, remember the marveling of the people. Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? The answer is in chapter 17. The lamb can and will Together with his called and chosen and faithful people, he will conquer the one who looked like he had conquered once and for all. And it, it, beloved, we, again, you always feel like you're repeating yourself because every generation of the church has reasons to think it's right around the corner. Are you, how many of you are familiar with what's happening right now between China and Taiwan? And for the first time ever, the FBI has, um, done a joint, what do you call it, project or something with with MI5 in England because the threat from China invading Taiwan is so deadly to the entire world. It could end the world's entire economic system and make it crumble if this happens in certain ways. I'm just going off what I'm reading there. So is is that the beginning of the end, really? Is that, it's hard to say. I, I, I would say, beloved, marvel at God's plan. Marvel at his wisdom. At the end of the age, All the nations of the earth, the ten horns, will join the beast. They'll destroy the prostitute. G.K. Beale, a commentator on Revelation, says this means that the political side of the ungodly world system will turn against the heart of the social, economic, religious side of the ungodly world and destroy. There's no honor among thieves, right? They'll kill the prostitute, the apostate church, and every false religion institution or system will be destroyed by a global coalition of political and military powers, probably to make one global identity with its own religion. They'll make the prostitute desolate, naked, devour her flesh, burn her up with fire. Those are all images from the prophet Ezekiel. They will end that, the the sleazy side of it, the deceptive side of it, because there will be no more need to conspire. The secret will be out. They'll say we want to take over the world and they'll do it. All of it will be done out in the open in broad daylight in an attempt, a successful one initially, to take over the world. And as terrifying as that sounds, in verse 17, it's all according to plan. Only the hand of God can account for how foolish and short-sighted and self-destructive this insane, this insane plot Will be. They really think they'll win. And all they're doing is gathering in one place so that it's easier to set them on fire for Jesus. That's all that's happening. God willed in one sense to influence the hearts of kings so that they would do what is against his will in another sense. God is sovereign and God is too much. He's too big. He's too powerful. For you and I tonight, you know what that means? Everything is under control. Beloved, even the very worst of things is under control by Almighty God. So, beloved, tonight, 
Remember this. Take heart in this. Revelation was not written ultimately to give us exact names and dates so that we knew exactly what was happening and when it would happen. It was written to tell us what history, the times in which every generation of the church lives, is basically always going to look like until the very climactic end, which was a result of the fact, or is a result of the fact, that Jesus Christ has ascended victoriously to the right hand of the Father where He reigns as Redeemer and King, and to tell us that throughout all the writhing and fury of evil and the schemes and opposition against His Son, God is sovereign. This is why the first century church that John was writing to is given the same admonishments to watch and hold fast and not give up and endure that we are being given when we read it in the 21st century. Because this is history. This is what it's going to look like. We will know when the end has come, when there's this attempt to bring everything under one empire, the eighth one, the end one. These words apply to the church in every age until Jesus returns. This giant ball we're on, even when it's out of control, is in his hands. He is the Lord of history. Whether my view of it is wrong or right, that's right. He's the Lord of history. He has designed it. It will go according to his plan. And to know that it will get worse before the end, to know that it will get darkest before the dawn, but the sun will Rise. That's what Revelation is about. That Jesus is reigning. Notice, history, time, date, that's not what Revelation, that's not what's being revealed. It is the revelation of Jesus, beloved. That is what is being revealed. This is what history is going to look like because He is at the Father's right hand, reigning. That was the catalyst to put the devil in panic mode. And it ends up looking like this. Jesus Christ will return in power and glory to finish evil in destruction and judgment to bring all his people finally unto himself and to bring heaven down to earth to make it new on top of the embers of the old one. So that no matter what day and age we live in, no matter how horrible our suffering and persecution, which will one day be global at the hands of the dragon, the beast and the prostitute, he holds us in his hand. We are sheep in the midst of wolves, but we are his sheep, beloved. So endure. Endure and be saved. Don't defect. Don't stop believing Christ. Don't let the world make you think that the world wins. It doesn't. It doesn't. For this We rest all our hope and faith on the Lamb who was slain. The Lion of the tribe of Judah who is and who was and who is to come. We cast our lot on the conquering Lamb, beloved, and we are safe. You, you, little flock, are the called and chosen and faithful. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You are who God says you are. Even in all our struggling with sin, our struggling with faith, the places where we don't get it right, you are His. His. Never forget who God says you are. Never. This is Christ for us.